0: Quote, if you or anyone else will take the trouble and have the intelligence and patience to follow and examine every one of my crimes and actions, you will find that I have consistently followed one idea through all my life. I preyed upon the weak, the harmless, or unsuspecting. Those I have harmed were either weaklings, either mentally or physically. Those who were strong in either mind or body I first lied to and led into a trap where they were either asleep or drunk or helpless in some way. I always had the best of it all, because I knew ahead of time just what to expect and the others did not. I, therefore, was strong in my knowledge and stronger in body than those preyed upon." Quote. This week, we continue our story of Karl Panzram, and that quote should refresh your memory of the kind of man we continue to attempt to understand. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougere and I'm that person that when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. This is part two of the Carl Panzram story, The Making of a Psychopath. If you missed last week's episode, you might want to swing back around to that one first. But for a quick recap, I begin with the content warnings. Our boy does not get any more polite in this second half of his life, so be warned. This episode does contain graphic and disturbing content. Last week, we left off with Carl Panzram serving time in Oregon's state penitentiary. He's just become an accessory to murder before the fact. He riled up the inmates and burned down whatever he could. Otto Hooker, which he described as a simple man, made his escape under Carl's encouraging. Hooker would end up shooting Warden Henry Minto in the face, killing him instantly. He ran and ended up trapped in an abandoned building. The police had him cornered and told him to come out. When Hooker exited the building, he made a sweeping motion with his hand, and was shot, assuming that he was armed. He was killed instantly. He did not have a weapon. Both Harry and John Minto had applied for the warden position in 1915, but when the field was narrowed down to just Harry and himself, John withdrew in favor of his brother. John Minto took the position three days after his brother's murder. Even though the state of Oregon had banned the use of flogging, water torture, electric shock, and the snorting pole, many of these forms of punishment continued to go on. There was little to no accountability as to what went on behind prison walls until the prisoners started escaping. Solitary confinement, or sometimes called the bullpen, was used to separate inmates from one another. The bullring, which is the chain-link fence inside the prison yard, this was used to make a small number of inmates walk around and around and around the circle without stopping or pausing, or if they stopped, the guards would have permission to shoot. They would also handcuff prisoners to the door. In other prisons, this was called the bull ring. They would cuff them high so they had to stand, sometimes just barely by their toes. It was only supposed to be used for a maximum of eight hours, but most times the guards forgot their watches. And then also, there was the infamous Oregon boot. In case you were wondering, I know I was, this was the ball and chain without the ball and without the chain. It's a ring of iron that could weigh anywhere from 5 pounds to 28 pounds and was locked around the prisoner's ankle. It attached to a metal frame that would fit underneath the shoe and support the weight. These were only worn on one leg and would cause long-term damage to the prisoner, and the short-term damage would be the skin lesions that would commonly get infected. But it did apparently help to keep prison breaks to a minimum. The inmate was able to walk wearing the boot, but running was nearly impossible. The boot was still in use all the way up until 1939. The guards mental staffed at the prison were as rough and vicious in many respects as the incarcerated men themselves. The disciplinary records show inmates were forced to stand anywhere from four to twenty-four hours. Isolation, however, was the most effective method for enforcing discipline. Quote, Unruly prisoners, after a short period of confinement here soon see the folly of disobedience and promise conformance to prison rules. End quote. The new warden, John Minto, had his hands full. Like his brother, Minto attempted to enforce strict discipline and frequently employed flogging and hosing as a form of punishment. From our last episode, Pan'sram is healing from his water torture, being chained to the bullring wall and assaulted with a high-pressure hose until he thought he was drowning, his eyes and ears were swollen, and his skin was raw the governor of Oregon found out about the prison brutality and sent a three-man commission to investigate. The investigative commission witnessed the prisoner's infirmed state and confirmed the reports and denounced the brutal practices. Quote, when Pansram sensed the let up, he banged his bucket all night long on his cell door and shouted curses at the guards. When the other inmates realized that retaliation was not forthcoming, they joined him. End quote. Not long after... John Minto no longer worked at the prison. Resigned, fired, either way, he was gone, and the prison needed a replacement. In 1916, Charles A. Murphy came to the Oregon State Penitentiary. According to Joseph Leahy in his paper from A Cycle of Crisis, Before Murphy's arrival, the prison was riddled with distrust, jealousy, suspicion, and vindictiveness. Changes under Murphy were rapid. He broke through the hard crust of the system and cleared the atmosphere of the prison poison. That summer of nineteen seventeen, however, will be long remembered by the inmates for the privileges enjoyed and the general all-around prosperity of this institution. End quote. Under the Murphy administration, the bull ring was removed entirely and a new policy of discipline was introduced. It was a radical change from the past. The public, staff, and prisoners, were shocked. Carl would recall quote, there was no religion about him and no brutality. Those who wanted religion could have it. There was no punishment of any kind except one, and that was to be locked in a cell, given a bed to sleep on, three meals a day, plenty of books to read, and exercised twice each day. End quote. Leahy adds quote, Murphy had seen that the traditional methods of achieving prison stability had not been effective. He abolished virtually every harsh punishment and established K.P., potato peeling in the kitchen, as the worst punishment a rule-breaker would receive. His soft approach to disciplinary policy was followed by a corresponding decline in disciplinary offenses. He hoped that leniency would have a positive effect on the inmates." It would be the first time Carl was shown kindness and respect. Murphy had told him that he didn't believe that he was as bad as everyone claimed, that everyone has a good side of them. He was an idealist. He put his words to the test. He offered Carl the opportunity to go outside of the prison gates once his work was done to wander around freely as long as he gave his word of honor to be back inside the walls by the time the headcount was done at supper. Carl says, quote, I thought for a few minutes and then I gave him my word of honor that he would see me there for supper time, and I would not try to escape. Even when I told him that, I had not the least intentions of keeping my word of honor. I fully intended to escape at that first chance, but something went wrong somehow. He was as good as his word. He opened the gates and I was free. I just stood there dumbfounded and so surprised at what I couldn't understand that I didn't try to escape at all." Murphy then offered the prisoners jobs that they felt they could excel in. He offered them confidence. He put together a baseball team and then a band. And there, in front, leading the band, was Carl Panzram carrying a flag. He wrote, "...I stuck it out for about seven or eight months and made no attempt to escape in any way." But then, one evening, he stayed out too late because he drank too much. He says, The night was warm and the moon was shining bright. A freight train was whistling down in the yards, calling to me, I figured. Anyway, I answered. I pulled out of there. He made it all the way to Eugene, Oregon, and fell back into his old survival habits. He robbed a home, got a change of clothes, a pocket full of cash, and a loaded weapon he said that for the first time in about a week he stopped to eat and think he said quote, "i would rather die than be brought back to the prison to face murphy" end quote. well that was not an option he found himself in a gun battle with a sheriff of the town in broad daylight not only did he make all the papers but he was also sentenced to 10 years back at the prison expecting the worst he again was shown kindness quote, Back at the prison, I went there. Nothing was done to me. He didn't know what to do with these unfamiliar emotions, so he fell back on what he did know Escape. Quote, I made it clean. I have never been back since I still owe fourteen years there. End quote. Warden Charles A. Murphy's reform policies, however, were short-lived. Fifty-eight escapes during the span of nineteen seventeen and nineteen eighteen crippled his administration. Quote, I was so full of hate that there was no room in me for such feelings as love, pity, kindness, honor, or decency, End quote. Even though the treatment he received from Morden Murphy didn't change the habits of his habitual rapist, arsonist, and thief self, it did make an impact. In his autobiography, Murphy was the only person he looked back on with respect, and perhaps a bit of regret. We don't see this from him again until he meets Henry Lesser who was his last, and perhaps, only friend. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's Acidified Body Wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus. You help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. In 1919, Carl Panzram made his way to New York and, with the help of a boy, robbed a hotel to get a bankroll. He was able to acquire all the documentation needed to get a Seaman's identification card under the name of John O'Leary. He was able to work for the Grace Line on the ship James S. Whitney. This ship took him to Panama, and from there he managed to migrate to Peru, Chile, and then back to Panama, where he got a job for the Sinclair Company. Still not a good team player, he was fired for fighting, in which he retaliated by setting fire to the oil rig. He made his way back to the States and found work on a different oil tanker that introduced him to Glasgow, Scotland, where he managed to do a bit of jail time. From there, he wandered to London, England, Paris, France, then Hamburg, Germany, before making his way back to American soil once again. By this time, he was broke. He made his way to New Haven, Connecticut, and robbed the home of William H. Taft. This was post-presidency and when he was teaching law as a professor at Yale University, which is what brought his family and himself to Connecticut. Pansram stole some Liberty Bonds, jewelry, and a watch that was given to Taft, and a gun, a Colt forty-five. This was the robbery we mentioned in the last episode he would think of as revenge of sorts for Taft sending him to Fort Leavenworth. Although I'm pretty sure he was just as surprised that it was Taft's home. Another time he would try to return and have another round, but he was caught. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. Before that can happen, Carl Panzram's criminal repertoire escalates. He takes the money and some of the items stolen to purchase a five-bedroom yacht named the Akista. He steals alcohol and luxury items from other yachts in the area, and he goes into town looking for a few sailors for hire. Quote, Every day or two I would go to New York and hang around 25th South Street and size up the sailors. Whenever I saw a couple who were about my size and seemed to have money, I would hire them to work on my yacht. I would always promise big pay and easy work. He would buy them alcohol until he had them convinced to bring their clothes out to his yacht, and they were never seen again. Carl Panzram commits his first murders. Quote, I'd get them out to my yacht get them drunk, commit sodomy on them, rob them, and then kill them." End quote. He would restock his supply of booze from the neighboring yachts docked in the same harbor and would repeat the process again. Quote, we would wine and dine, and when they were drunk enough, they would go to bed. When they were asleep, I would get my forty five colt army automatic stole from Mr. Taft's home and blow their brains out. End quote. He was thrilled to think that once the bodies would be discovered near Execution Rock's lighthouse, they could trace their murders back to Taft's weapon. Quote, I would take a rope and tie a rock on them and put them in my rowboat, row them out the main channel about one mile and drop them overboard. They are there yet, ten of them. End quote. That brings us to lesson three, lie. You can get anyone to believe anything as long as you tell them what they want to hear. Now that he's had the taste of murder, he would use this same technique later on his criminal resume. He discovered how gullible people were. How would you like to earn some money? easy money. How would you like to go for a ride on my yacht? I've got more whiskey over at the barn. Could you show me the way to? There's a shiny coin in it for you, if... The gig was up after only a month when the neighbors started getting suspicious So he hired a couple of sailors to move the Akista to New Hunting Ground. He had every intention of committing the same atrocities on these young men, but things ran amuck when the Akista, filled with stolen items, crashed and sunk just outside the Atlantic City, New Jersey. His last two victims were able to escape, none the wiser. Back on land, he managed to get some minor jail time for attempted robberies in Philadelphia, and when he posted bail, he jumped it, heading straight for Virginia. He managed to weasel his way onto a ship, rob the passengers, and escape when it landed in Europe. From Europe, somehow he made it to the Belgian Congo in Africa. He got a cruel job as a slave driver for the Sinclair Oil Company, again, and would purchase an 11-year-old girl from her family. Still a little gun-shy about being with women since his last few times he'd come away with burning diseases. He wanted to make sure he was getting a virgin. He took the child home and molested her, but didn't believe that she had been untouched. The family wouldn't give him his money back, but offered up their younger daughter of only eight. He molested her, but again didn't trust it, so he returned her as well, and instead went looking for a boy. He found one, a young boy that was his waiter, and Carl invited him back to his room with lies and sodomized him. The next day, Carl found himself without a job. The boy told his boss. Lesson four. Don't trust anyone. Robbery, arson, rape, and now murder are his favorite things. Just don't get caught. He was turned down for passage back to the States from the U.S. consul, and while he was trying to decide what to do, quote, a little boy about 11 or 12 years old came bumming around. He was looking for something. He found it, too. I took him out to a gravel pit about a quarter mile from the main camp. I left him there, but first I committed sodomy on him, then killed him. His brains were coming out of his ears when I left him, and he will never be any deader." Still trying to get out of the Congo, he hired a canoe to look and, I guess, hunt for crocodiles. But instead, he decided to kill the six men that rowed him out there in order to steal their canoe. So with his luger, he shot each of them in the head and tossed them overboard to the crocodiles. Then that night, his stolen canoe was stolen from him, so he really had no other alternative but to walk. He walked and walked until no one knew of him or his crimes and he could stow away on a ship bound for Portugal. He eventually made his way back to the United States by the way of England and wound up back in New York. This happened over a period of three years, bringing us up to nineteen twenty two in July of this same year he meets, sodomizes, and murders a twelve year-old boy outside of Salem, Massachusetts. He opts to get a job in Yonkers, New York, where he meets a fifteen year old boy named George. The boy is not repulsed by Carl and accepts the attention that he gives. He stays at that job for a few months and decides to leave, but promises that he will come back for George when he can. In summer of 1923, he steals a yacht in Rhode Island and sails it to New York. He picks up George as promised, and together they sail to Kingston, New York to make over the stolen yacht to look like his former sunken boat, which he still happens to have the paperwork for. He puts the boat up for sail, and the first bite he gets comes out to take a look at it. I guess monsters recognize monsters, and Carl knew pretty early on that the man was going to try and steal the yacht, so he shot him twice instead. This was more than young George could handle. For some reason, Carl opts to let him go, which breaks his third lesson. George goes to the police and tells him what he saw and that he was held against his will. The police catch him, confiscate his boat and all the stolen goods on it, and charge him with sodomy, burglary, robbery, and kidnapping. He was assigned an attorney, and Carl said he'd give him his boat and papers if he would get him out on bail. The lawyer took the deal. Carl happily left all the paperwork with the lawyer on his way out and skipped out to New Haven. When the lawyer tried to register his new boat... Only then did he discover that it was stolen and had to give it back to the original owners. In New Haven, he lured away another boy. This time, people remembered seeing him. The boy wasn't found for several days after Carl had left town. Quote, I committed a little more sodomy on him. I tied his belt around his neck and strangled him, picked him up when he was dead, and threw his body over behind some bushes. End quote. On August twenty-eighth, 1923, He breaks into a train station to loot the baggage of the travelers, and he's caught by a local policeman on watch when he sees Carl swinging an axe. He's able to knock him unconscious. Not long after he's arrested and tried for burglary, he is sentenced to five years at Sing Sing. Apparently, he was so rowdy and rambunctious that he was soon transferred to the most intense prison in America— the Clinton prison, located as close to the Canadian border while still being on the New York side as possible. This was Danamora, New York. When none of the other prisons could break you, this is where you would be sent. Originally built in 1844, but grew quickly as the other prisons in the New York state filled. Clinton is the largest and the third oldest prison of the state. When it shifted toward maximum security status in 1887, the walls surrounding the facility were extended to 60 feet high, which still stands today, and that's in addition to the 30 feet of wall that extends underground to discourage digging. It is considered, quote, one of the most oppressive penal institutions in America, end quote. Punishments included hosing the prisoner down and putting them out in the yard in the freezing temperatures. Their bullring consisted of hanging the prisoner high on the wall so only his toes touched the floor, and they were kept in a dark room. And the hummingbird. Around this time, the use of electricity as methods of punishment had become more widely used. The first death by electrocution had been performed in 1890 in the same state. The hummingbird allowed a high dose of pain with minimal outward blemishes. From Charles Edward Russell of the Bismarck Daily Tribune in the article Shame on Our Prisons in December of 1910, quote, Having been stripped, the delinquent was fastened on his back in a shallow metal tank filled with water and connected with one electrode from a dynamo. The other electrode was a wet sponge. Gloved in rubber, the operator took the wet sponge and passed it slowly up and down the prisoner's bare limbs. As it went, his muscles corded into knots and he shrieked aloud until he fainted, end quote. It was made to be the last stop for the worst of the worst, and he made sure his attendance there was verified. Quote, I was only there a few months when I made a time bomb and tried to burn down the shops, end quote. As per usual, he attempts escaped. He attempted to make a ladder to climb the wall, and he makes it about halfway, but the ladder soon breaks under his weight. He falls, landing on his back on the concrete slab below. He broke both ankles, both legs, fractured his spine, and ruptured his innards. He was taken to the hospital, where he lay in pain with no treatment for a week. He was then taken to a cell and just left. I was dumped into a cell without any medical or surgical attention, whatever. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put into a cast. In that condition, I was left for eight months crawling around like a snake with a broken back, seething with hatred and a lust for revenge, Apparently, during that time, there was another inmate who would try to annoy him so much he found the will to get to his feet to try and murder him. He said that he came up behind him and, quote, I hit him on the back of the head with a 10-pound club. It didn't kill him, but he was good and sick, and he left me alone after that, end quote. Finally, a new doctor came to the prison, and during his murder attempt, he managed to rupture his testicle. Instead of repair, they opted to remove it, also rumored to help control his sexual appetite. But, quote, Five days after my operation, I tried to see if my sexual organs were still in good order. I got caught trying to commit sodomy on another prisoner. For that, I was thrown out of the hospital and put into the segregation building, which was the solitary confinement. He spent the rest of confinement in solitary, two years and four months. Quote, I had nothing to do except brood upon what I thought was the wrongs that had been done to me. End quote. He was given no further medical treatment, and his bones had to stitch themselves back together as best they could, making him crippled for the rest of his life. According to an article from the Business Insider, quote, prolonged solitary confinement may lead to depression, which is tied to the shrinking of the hippocampus, the part of the brain that controls emotions and spatial orientation. End quote. I think Panzram went the way of, quote, Other effects tied to solitary include anger, hallucinations, paranoia, psychosis, and self-harm. It destroys one's capacity to relate socially, to work, to play, to hold a job, or enjoy life. Hans Ram would write, I used to spend all of my time thinking about how I could murder the most people with the least harm or expense to myself. He created elaborate plans of bombing, then gassing a train full of passengers being on standby with a machine gun and a gas mask, of course, to kill any that were attempting to escape. Then he would rob everyone and steal everything of value, this money he would use to plan an even bigger vengeance plot. He wanted to be responsible for launching World War II between England and the United States. In 1928, Carl Panzram is finally released from Danamora. Lesson 5. I am a monster. From the time I was 12 years old, I have been in jail, almost continually, until now, when I am 36. During my 20 years in all the various prisons and jails I have been in, I have undergone every kind of abuse and punishment that the ingenious minds of many men could devise, and, believe me, men can surely figure out some horrible tortures to impose on other men. I have had the whip, the paddle, the snorting pole, the hummingbird, the hose, the jacket, Chained up frontwards, backwards, bucked and gagged, spread-eagled, water-cured, starved, beaten, thrown into sweat-boxes and half-cooked, thrown into ice-cold dungeon and half-frozen. I have been in solitary confinement for years at a time, where I could have no privileges or pleasures of any kind. I have gone through every conceivable kind of torture that one man or body of men can impose on another man." End quote. From the front door of the prison, he made his way to civilization, and to show how his thoughtful time in prison made an impact on his life, he promptly committed several burglaries, a murder, and within two weeks he had made his way to Washington, D.C., where he committed another burglary and was caught. While on trial for burglary, he scoffed at the light sentence. He opted to represent himself in the court and proceeded to mock the institutions, and as he was removed, he shouted out claims of murder, rape, and his record of successful escapes. He shouted and stomped, saying he hated, quote, the whole human race and would like to kill every person in the world. I have been going around murdering people for the last 18 years, and I think it's time someone murders me, end quote. Maybe at first they took his ramblings as just that, but after he attempted escape, someone somewhere began to look into his bragging. During his trial, a newspaper printed, quote, In his trial on a burglary charge, Pansram declared he was waiting in the apartment, which he was convicted of burglarizing, for its occupants to return so he could bash their brains out. He told the police of a plan he once had in mind to kill thousands by poisoning the water of a reservoir. Panzram himself said My conscience doesn't bother me. I have no conscience. I believe the whole human race should be exterminated. The murder he committed after leaving Clinton prison was that of fourteen year old paper boy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Alexander Uzak. It was quickly confirmed. The norwalk hour published october twenty seventh nineteen twenty eight reported quote, Pansram gave the police gruesome details of the killing last August of a Philadelphia newsboy, acting on a letter they received from Pansram since he has been held at the jail on a housebreaking charge. Two Philadelphia detectives came to Washington and questioned the man. They returned home with the intention of seeking a first-degree murder indictment. End quote. And then confirmation of other murders began to emerge. Maybe he was telling the truth after all. In fact, he wrote a letter to the DA in Salem confessing directly to him, practically challenging him to do something about it. He writes in part, I do not change my former confession in any way. I committed that murder. I alone am guilty. I not only committed that murder, but twenty one besides, and I assure you here and now that if I ever get free and have the opportunity, I shall sure knock off another twenty two. The Pittsburgh Gazette would report on november second, nineteen twenty eight Two Massachusetts women identified Carl Panzram, who confessed to slaying three boys out of seven prisoners in jail yesterday as the man they saw disappear with twelve year old Henry McMahon in the woods near Charleston, Massachusetts, six years ago. The boy's body was found there. Pansram has confessed to the murder. District Attorney Rover has announced that Pansram, former seaman, will be held here to face charges of housebreaking, although efforts are being made by New London, Connecticut, Salem, Massachusetts, and Philadelphia to have him returned for trials. Pansram confessed to murders in each city, end quote. Even Oregon raised his hand to have Carl return to them to finish out those 14 years he still owes them. I bet he laughed. Quote, I have no desire whatsoever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me, and I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them. End quote. And yet, here, he meets a most unusual prison guard, Henry Lesser. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! The entire staff of the Washington, D.C. jail was put on high alert with the addition of their newest inmate. Inside that meeting was a young, 24-year-old new hire, Henry Lesser. Quote, We were informed that we had a very dangerous man in our midst and to be extra careful. End quote. It was only a few hours after that, Carl Panzram attempted to escape. They noticed that the bars had been tampered with, and before any serious damage could be done, they housed him in the section of the prison where the most dangerous of criminals were said to be taken, to the basement. For his attempt at escape, he was tortured, cuffed to a post, and whipped. Henry Lesser said, quote, His hands were then manacled in the back, and he was forced off his feet some distance, and he was kept there all night. End quote. It was the first time that anyone without a sentence of homicide would be kept in this wing. His sentence at the time was only burglary. The second night was more of the same. Henry would recall, quote, The first night he didn't know where he was going, so he didn't fight. But the second night he knew and he fought. They subdued him with clubs. He was kicked and dragged down to the post again. I felt they had no right to do what they did to him, even if he was a murderer and so on, end quote. The next day, he sent a dollar bill to Pansram for him to get some cigarettes and a snack, and so began their friendship. I felt he had a story to tell, and I encouraged him to write his autobiography. And after a couple of weeks of encouragement, they came up with an arrangement where Henry would sneak in paper and pencil to Carl and come back by and pick up the finished pages, tucking them into his jacket to remove them from the prison. Pansram writes, I may leave here at any time for some big house, madhouse, or death house, but I don't give a damn where they put me. They won't keep me very much longer. I would kind of like to finish writing this whole business out in detail before I kick off so that I can explain my side of it even though no one ever hears or reads it except for one man." Every day he would add pages to his growing manuscript and Henry would faithfully pick them up providing him with new blank pages, and then he would take them home to his wife to have her type them up. He writes, quote, I am here now waiting to see which way the wind blows, and perhaps the electric chair, the rope, or the madhouse. It makes very little difference to me either way, End quote. The last pages he wrote while in the company of Lesser, with his confession complete, he thought he would lay his pencil down. He would discover that he was being sent to Fort Leavenworth. The sentencing came down that he would serve 25 years for burglary, but because he was such a dangerous criminal, Washington, D.C. couldn't handle him. Carl Panzram arrived at Fort Leavenworth on February 1, 1929. He was taken directly to the warden's office and calmly explained the rules of his facility. When he was finished, it is said that Carl stood up looking huge in the small office and told him his only rule. Quote, I'll kill the first man that bothers me, end quote. Side note, prisoner number 31614, enter Carl Pansram to Fort Leavenworth, 25 years sentence for burglary. Machine Gun Kelly, his real name, George Kelly Barnes, happened to be the records clerk at the time Pansram arrived, and he also happened to misspell his last name. When I get so buried into one person's story, I forget what else is happening at that same time in history, so I find it interesting when Bag of Bones topics intersect one another. Another example, Robert Stroud, who later became known as the Birdman of Alcatraz, he also happened to be incarcerated at Leavenworth at the same time Pansram was there. He had actually begun his bird studies long before his transfer to Alcatraz. He would write about being across the aisle from Pansram. He was in cell 10, and Carl was in 13. Stroud didn't care for the man. He would write in his perfectly penned memoirs about how the men would brag about their crimes and misdeeds. Everyone's numbers would change with every retelling. Which is why I thought it was interesting that in his autobiography, he was actually very honest and forthcoming, and over the years, his claims have mostly been proven to be accurate. All my life I've been trying to figure out just what ails me and why. Not looking for the remedy or the effect. It's too late for the remedy, and I already know the effect. The only way I know to be cured is to die and get completely out of this world. All I want is to find out the reason why I am the way I am, and why I act the way I do. I've been puzzled all my life about this. Would sure like to know the answer before I leave this world." He places blame for every aspect of his life and how he turned out. He believes that society perpetuates itself by producing more criminals. Quote, All of my associates, all of my surroundings, the atmosphere of deceit, treachery, brutality, degeneracy, hypocrisy, and everything that is bad and nothing that is good. Why am I what I am? I'll tell you why. I did not make myself what I am. Others had the making of me, For his job, Carl was assigned to the laundry. It was considered a pretty quiet, easy job, and there was maybe only 15 other inmates in the same room, all doing their own thing. Robert Warnke was the supervisor of the day shift. He was a young civilian employee that employed the small amount of power he had over the inmates. His favorite pastime, apparently, was writing up his charges for the smallest of infractions. Hans Ram, being the passionate type of employee that he was, would get written up several times for everything, which meant more hours in solitary. He would write to Lesser, quote, I have an easy job, not very much to do. I don't mind it much, but I am trying to get a different job where I'll be more by myself, end quote. Other convicts would regard Warnke as, quote, a brute and a bully delighting to torment his prison slaves. It was his favorite diversion to taunt Pansram about his reported, quote-unquote, moral habits, quote. Lewis Kelly, prisoner number 29150, would say, quote, I had to work with Pansram in the laundry since February 1st this year, and him and Mr. Warnke had a few words over three handkerchiefs, which Pansram had and was washing in the bleacher in the laundry. Warnke told him that he was not permitted to use that bleacher, that he was not any better than the rest of us and that no one was allowed to use that bleacher. Pansram remarked that if Warnke didn't lay off, he would get Warnke. End quote. Pansram requested a job change and was denied. He writes to Lesser on June fifteenth, 1929, quote, I am still on my same job and liking it less each day. I'm getting all set for a change. It won't be long now. I'm doomed to pass out of the picture pretty soon. I've fully decided that I want to die. There will be no turning aside, and some way I shall surely accomplish my desire to die." On June twentieth, 1929, Carl Panzram picked up a four-foot-long iron bar and, without a sound, approached Warnke from behind. In front of a dozen other inmates, he brings the pipe down on Warnke's head. Blood spurts in every direction and he can't help himself, and he continues swinging and swinging the iron bar. He threatens to take on the other inmates and instead starts a riot within the laundry room. Carl, still armed with his iron bar, makes his way to the deputy warden's office. At the door, he faces off with Phil Holtzgrave, the blood of his employees spattered across Carl's face and body. But then, he drops his lead pipe, and it clangs to the concrete floor. Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougere here from Bag of Bones podcast. Since Stampsland Defense has become part of the Bag of Bones team, I'm pretty sure I've become their biggest fan and customer. These tools they offer are so valuable for the world we live in today, and I just don't want anyone that's important to me to be without. So around here, it's like, you get a taser, you get a striker, you get some mace. <laughs> I am giving the gift of safety for every gift this year. If you have a female in your life, or you yourself need to beef up your personal security, check out our exclusive link and see what Damsel in Defense has to offer. Just a hint, check out the specials they have this month and you'll sleep better knowing your loved ones are just a little bit safer because you opted for a personal safety device instead of shoes. You can start shopping now by heading to the Bag of Bones exclusive page at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Summary of his lessons. Quote, I did not want to learn these lessons, but what I found out, that it isn't what one wants in this world that one gets. Force and might make right. Perhaps things shouldn't be that way, but that's the way they are. I learned to look at suspicion and hatred on everybody. It wasn't my fault that the teachers who gave me my instructions were the wrong kind, or that the lessons they taught me were the wrong kind. Men made me what I am today, and if men don't like what they have made me, they must put the blame where it belongs. End quote. His trial for the murder begins on April fourteenth, nineteen thirty He will serve as his own counsel and enter the plea of not guilty. The jury deliberated for forty-five minutes after hearing the testimonies of the warden, five guards, and ten inmates delivering the verdict of guilty. The judge would remand him back to Leavenworth until September 5th, where he would be hanged by the neck until dead. Carl would write, quote, I started out in life enjoying it and hating no one. I am winding it up now by hating the whole human race, including myself, and having no desire to live any longer. For all the misery and tortures that I have went through, I have made other men go through many times over, only worse, End quote. By April 16th, the newspapers were all abuzz about Kansas overturning their rule about execution. The International News Service writes, quote, Federal jury votes hanging in Kansas, execution of convict made mandatory, although the state bars the death penalty, from Topeka, Kansas. And the Chicago Evening American, also on April 16th, 1930, prints, quote, a jury heard the evidence in the trial and returned a verdict of guilty and added a curt without mercy to their findings. In the meantime, the court ordered that the Braggart murderer must be held in solitary confinement, end quote. On June 5th, 1930, he would write to his only friend, quote, There's nothing I can do for you for the many favors you have done for me. Gratitude is one of the many things that has been kicked out of me, but I can... And truly wish you good luck. End quote. On august twenty second, the newspaper out of Topeka, Kansas would headline quote, Man who boasts he killed twenty three to hang september fifth. Arrangements have been completed today for the execution of Carl Pansram, who boasted of having killed twenty three persons and professes to welcome death who's hanging September 5th at Leavenworth Penitentiary, will be the first legal execution in Kansas in 40 years. Contracts were let for the building of the scaffolding, and the hangman has been hired, officials announced. Pansram has refused to ask for executive clemency, end quote. October 31, 1929. Pansram writes, I thought I would write you a letter today because I feel pretty good just now. I feel pretty near human. For several different reasons, and here are a few. It's so long since I've been beaten or kicked around, chained up or knocked down, that I've almost forgotten how it feels, but not quite. I still remember. I walk into a cell fully expecting to be chained up and beaten to death. But what happens? The exact perverse of that. No one lays a hand on me. No one abuses me in any way. I have been in the past three or four months trying to figure it out, and I have come to the conclusions that, if in the beginning I had been treated as I am now, then there wouldn't have been quite so many people in this world that would have been robbed, raped, and killed. And perhaps, also very probably, I wouldn't be where I am today. Maybe I am wrong, though. I am too dumb to know what might have been, but I am also not so dumb that I can't see a little way into the future, not very far but enough to see the end of Karl Panzram. From the book *The House of Whispering Hate* by Charles Wharton, quote, September third, very early this morning, a truck drove up to the gate laden with lumber. It did not have to wait; it was expected. Officialdom admitted it at once. Warden, deputies, chaplain, and guards scurried to and fro, bent on mysterious errands. There were whispered consultations, telephone calls, anxious frowns, and suppressed excitement. But we knew before the truck came inside the gate of the prison. the grapevine had telegraphed the message: "Here comes the gallows for pansram. The Topeka Kansas paper reported quote, September third, nineteen thirty Kansas to have its first hanging since eighteen seventy will be Friday." erection of a scaffold for the first execution in Kansas since 1870, the Hanging Friday of Carl Pansram, slayer of a prison official and described as one of the most hardened criminals in America, was begun at the Federal Penitentiary. End quote. September 5th, 1930. Another passage from the House of Whispering Hate. Quote, when he came out of the door, we saw him, two hundred pounds of flesh possessed of but one virtue, Brute courage he was less to be pitied than the ashen-faced officials, shrinking from the task they had at hand. He would be hurled into eternity, hating as hating he lived. his hands were red with the blood of a score of victims he never had shown mercy, never asked it End quote. just before six a m Karl Panzram led the way to the newly built scaffolding. His limp was pronounced, but he walked with purpose, and those who witnessed it said they could swear he was smiling. According to a few prisoners who found a crack in the window and were able to watch the procession, witness Pansram turn and spit on the chief warden. Then, without hesitation, walked up the 13 steps to the platform. While the executioner placed the black bag over his head, Pansram spit in his face as well. They asked if he had any last words. He stated, Yes. What is taking so long? He added a few expletives and then, quote, I could kill a dozen men while you're screwing around, end quote. He drew in a breath and began cursing everyone he could think of, including his mother, for bringing him into the world. And, mid-sentence, they pulled the lever. It took him 18 minutes to die. Dr. Justin K. Fuller pronounced him dead at the gallows and took him to the prison hospital to perform the standard autopsy. Since no one bothered to claim his remains, he is buried on the premises of Leavenworth Penitentiary Prison Cemetery. His gravestone is etched only with his prison number, 31614. The copper plate that had his name engraved on it was long stolen. Quote, All that I leave behind me is smoke, death, desolation, and damnation. I am sorry for two things. The two things are, I am sorry that I mistreated some few animals in my lifetime, and I am sorry that I am unable to murder the whole damned human race. End quote. September fifth, nineteen thirty, execution day. The Kansas City Journal Post writes simply quote, Rope silences curses of prison murderer. End quote. Charles Wharton recalls in his book quote, To my surprise, however, little was said after Panzram became broken necked corpse. For as soon as he passed from the prison scene, none of the men took any further interest in his crime, his punishment, or his revolting tales that were told of his moral habits, Henry Lesser got Panzram's autobiography published under the title Killer, A Journal of Murder in 1970. Pansram's descriptions of his crimes were so graphic that publishers in the 1930s wouldn't go near it, but Lesser didn't give up and after four decades, he was able to get it in print. In 1980, criminologists at San Diego State University interviewed Harry Lesser after using the published book as part of their curriculum for almost a decade. Henry Lesser passed away in 1983 at the age of 82, leaving the handwritten documents to the San Diego State University for safekeeping and reference. In 1996, the Panzram story came to the big screen and starred James Wood. Carl Panzram would believe quote, "every child has some criminal tendencies it is your place to correct those traits and teach them the right way to live while they're young and their minds are forming then when they do reach the age of reason and action it will be quite natural for them to live clean upright honorable lives and that way you will stop crime at its source before it begins the main causes of why we are what we are is because of our improper teaching" Lack of knowledge And our environments Teach them the meanings of such things as truth Lie Honor Hate Love If you are really sincere in wanting to teach those boys how to grow up to be good men Then you will have to go at it far differently than the way I was taught I have lived 36 years in this world and soon I expect to leave it All that I leave behind me is smoke, death, desolation, and damnation End quote And before we leave this episode, I want to leave you with this final quote. If, after reading what I write, your faith in human nature isn't all destroyed, then it never will be. End quote. Thank you for joining me for this second half of the Carl Panzram story. I wanted to take a quick moment to say an extra special thank you to those who have left us a review on Apple. I know that many of you listen while you're driving and you don't have the opportunity to leave while you're listening, so I really do appreciate you making a specific effort to do so. It may only take a couple minutes, but I am so grateful for your kind words. I'm Elizabeth Bouchery. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.